Well, I want to answer the question I'm always asked. Wes, do you own a pair of pants and a jacket? <laughs> and the answer is yes for you. I'll pull out my very best. Uh, yes, I actually do own pants and a jacket, multiple jackets and pants, actually. But, uh, you know, I take my leave from Bob. Once you retire, you kind of just cast off the things of the work world. But uh, it's great to be here. Uh, isn't it such a joy to worship here? Uh, Angela and I have been to a lot of churches in our travels, in our life as a Christian. And this is a very unique place. And we are very thankful to be here because there's something unique and different here. Another thing I want to ask of you is to make sure and pray for Andrew. Because as I was preparing for this, I realized I'm a man of unclean lips because I'm a man of unclean heart. And the prayers of the congregation help build a hedge of protection around your pastor and lift him up so that the spirit convicts him, cleanses him, and makes him able to come before us week after week after week and proclaim the word cleanly and clearly. So just always remember to pray for those. And this just really brings home to me how much important it is to pray for your pastor and elders. Okay, boomers. Those of you who don't know, that is a derisive term for anyone born 1960 or before used by the present generation to basically discard everything they have to say. Okay, boomers, meaning baby boomers. Okay, boomers, I've heard it all before. Okay, boomers, do you remember the 1989 song by Billy Joel, We Didn't Start the Fire? You ever heard that song, We Didn't Start the Fire? Kind of frenetic, but it sticks in your mind. If you think back about it, it was a list of all the contention and crises of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But interestingly, if you listen to it closely today, it's amazing how all the underlying issues are exactly the same. Sure, the names have changed to protect the innocent, the specifics, have, the specifics have changed a little bit, but the song is really about lamenting all the disorder, chaos, and world filled with, to quote the Grinch, noise, 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 just noise all the time, weighing you down about all the anxiety and crisis in the world. And the only, but the only problem is, the only solution that song, if you think back to it, the only solution it offers is fatalism. Since you didn't start the fire, you can't possibly put it out. That's all it offers you. But the fact is, if you read much history, you're going to find that every generation faces trying times and really fearful stuff. You think COVID was bad? The plague killed 50% of the population of Europe twice. Okay. Closer to home close to home. You probably don't know this. A hundred years ago, Florida was racked by a yellow, yellow fever epidemic that wiped entire towns off the map. Uh, and we're not even mentioning the hurricanes. You see, in this world, we will have trouble. And there's nothing new under the sun. So as Billy Joel said, we didn't start the fires. They were always burning since the world was turning, certainly since the world fell. But we live in a fallen world, and until the return of the Lord, the world will be an anxious, fearful place. So I want to ask you a question. I want to ask you a question. What makes you anxious? What makes you anxious? I want you to take a moment and really think about that. What is it that makes you anxious in your heart? What do you catch yourself worried about? You know, we live in this world that's filled with chaos, crisis, conflict, in a single world, things that make us anxious. So back to the question, what makes you anxious?
Inflation, insurrection, rebellion, protest, strife, the prospect of choosing between 112 different genders and all those messy pronouns. Maybe it's monkeypox or COVID or before that murder hornets or before that bird flu or before that swine flu. And does anyone even remember Zika virus? or Afghanistan, or the war on terror, or 9-11. There are so many things tearing at our attention that it's hard not to be anxious. There's just so many things closer to home. How about your job, your income? Does your family ever make you anxious? Your friends, your enemies, your health? How about even your spiritual walk? This world is an anxious, fallen place, and it's hard not to be anxious living in it. But today, today we're going to take a look at the antidote. So, you know, I'm getting ready for the sermon. I'm getting ready to preach. And I'm tossing and turning last night. And it dawned on me. I'm filled with anxiety about preaching a sermon on anxiety. <laughs> so I started repeating over and over again, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. And I realized I'm missing the point. So today we're going to take a look at this scriptural antidote. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Philippians 4. New Testament, kind of, in there somewhere. Uh, Right after Ephesians, right before Colossians. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. You got it? You there? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Here it comes. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition or supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So let us pray. Precious God and Heavenly Father, bless the proclamation of your word, your words, and give us hearing ears, understanding minds, and willing hearts. Comfort us. Give us courage, teach us your ways, and help us to dwell on who you are in the midst of what we face. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So why preach anxiety now to this fellowship? Well, you know, Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians seems like it's written us. This is what he says. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, and for that indeed what you're doing. But I urge you, brothers and sisters, do this more and more. You see, Sand Harbor, brothers and sisters, I would say this since we've been here two and a half years. We've seen it. When you walk in here, you feel it, don't you? This church really has an affection for one another. You can sense it in the fellowship of the Lord. That's one of the things that sets the church apart. All you have to do is stand around the sanctuary before or after the service, and you'll see the affection people have for one another. It's that affection that believers have for one another, independent of where you're from or where you go. So this is more of a message of encouragement to excel even more in what the church is already doing and exhortation for those of you who maybe aren't there yet. So that's what we are. So my message has three parts. First, we're going to describe the context of Paul's letter to the Philippians and see why it's practical for today. Okay, so we're going to look at the context. Second, we're going to pull apart the verses to see what they teach us about anxiety. And third, we're going to see what the Bible teaches is the antidote to that anxiety. So you got that? Context, what the text says, and an application. So remember, a good good rule 
A text without a context is a pretext. <laughs> so remember, the context is really important before you look at the text and before you ever apply it. So that's what we're going to do. So first, the letter, of, uh, the letter Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, the Philippians. It's written about 60, 62 AD, around in there somewhere. It's been 30 years since Christ is gone. So it's been a while. Think back 30 years. It's been a while. So he's writing to the church at Philippi to encourage the church to live as citizens of the heavenly city. That's what he's doing. So the world, whether it's the ancient Roman world, the, the ancient Roman empire, or the current American empire, this is not our ultimate home. We're citizens of two places. We're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, and yet we're citizens wherever God has chosen to place us at that time. So what's true, and if that's true, how then are we supposed to live? So what Philippians about really is this. Jesus is our supreme example. So Christ is basically telling us, imitate Christ. And then find those around you, the Christians who imitate Christ, and imitate them. So in this letter, he talks about Paul, Epaphroditus, and Timothy. Look at the people who walk the talk and try to imitate them. So why is the date and location important? Philippi was an important trading city situated on the Via Ignatia, which was a major east and west highway between east and west between Turkey, Greece, and Rome. It was this transient melting pot. Hmm, sounds very similar. Sort of transient melting pot. Sounds a lot like Florida. Different cultures, religions, languages. It was known for commerce, and it had been a gold mining center, and in antiquity, a lot of important battles were, had, had been fought there. Because it was this pinch point between the east and the west, it was a place where many battles were fought. And so they were familiar with commerce, things like gold and money, and also war. And although on the frontier of the Roman Empire at that time, something was coming that could really strike terror, and that was persecution. You could hear the thunder in the distance. It was coming, and it was coming close, it was coming fast. You see, beginning in Rome, under Nero in the, in the, in 50, in the 50s AD, persecution was spreading like COVID, and nobody was immune. It didn't matter if you had the vaccine or not, you weren't immune. And the Philippians were going to face its full fury pretty quickly. Christians were going to be tortured, they were going to be burned, fed to the lions, they would be shunned, mocked, arrested, and killed. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Always, it's a command. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious at all. What's going on here? So he was preparing the Christians then and now to have the attitude of Christ as their citizens of the two kingdoms, the one, the heavenly kingdom, and the world we live in now. He was writing to encourage and strengthen them. Now the verses themselves. Let's pick apart the verses. That's the context. They're marked by imperatives or commands. An imperative, there's something the scriptures calls indicatives and imperatives. An indicative is where, here's what you should think about God. And then a imperative is, here's what you should do about it. These are imperatives. They're commands. Paul's saying to you, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Has anyone ever said to your kids, I really mean it this time? <laughs> this is Paul saying, this is what you need to do. You need to rejoice. Now, how does that work with your children when you yell at them? I said rejoice. <laughs> Something more is going on here, and Paul's going to lay that out for us. And then it continues with another imperative. And I want you to think about this. You're going to be sawn in two or fed to the lions. You're going to lose your job. Bad things are coming, so don't be anxious. <laughs> okay? I know what you're thinking. I've heard all this before, right? I've, yada, yada, yada. I've heard it before. I know it's true, right? As a Christian, you know this is true. 
But it's easier said than done, isn't it? I mean, last night, it's like three and a half hours I'm tossing and turning. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Gosh, I'm filled with anxiety. Who can actually do it, much less most of the time? It's impossible. You know, we are afflicted in every way. We are. We are afflicted in every way. We are perplexed. We are persecuted. We are struck down. But believer, although hard to remember, today's scripture is about recalling what you already know to be true and bringing that central to your life. That's the alpha and omega of what we're going to talk about today, what you already know to be true. So tell you a quick story, kind of illuminate you a little bit more about the Jameson household. The, the children were both, the children from our household are grown now, but they will wince and laugh. In Iowa, we lived smack dab in the middle of Tornado Alley. I don't know if anyone's ever been out there, but in the spring, it's a terrifying place. Every afternoon in May, it seemed like we'd get a tornado warning. And you don't, Florida tornadoes, they're nothing. You know, out there, they're real, the real deal. And to try to describe it to you, they'd come from the west across the Great Plains. And you'd look out there, and it, the sky would kind of roll and bubble like it was boiling. Remember that? It was like this boiling cauldron. It kind of looked like, so for the physician's assistants, nurses, or just people who've been severely injured, it looked like a week to two week old bruise. It was kind of blue and black and green and yellow around the edges. And it was like this big bruise coming across the sky from the plains towards your house. So where we lived, it was so flat, you could see a town 20 miles away. It was a tabletop. And so what would happen, you'd get the tornado warning and what you would do, the men in the neighborhood would gather outside, catch up on sports news, and kind of watch the storm, just stand there and talk, looking at the horizon, seeing which way the storm is going to go. Okay? No, no, no cause for anxiety yet. And if it was daytime, you're going to have plenty of time to get down in the storm cellar if it's going to get close to you, right? So you're out there talking. It was kind of remarkable for a Floridian. I wish we had that attitude about hurricanes. Uh, but every time... Our children would be down in the basement under the table chanting Psalm 56 over and over again. When I'm afraid, I'll trust in you. 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 Finally, one day, being a pious homeschooling dad, I went to the basement and told them, okay, get out from underneath the table and actually trust in him. How do you think that turned out? Remember, we would have seen the tornadoes long before they came and had plenty of time to get inside. So I want them to recognize that there's a thin line between wise prudence and fearful anxiety and fear. And I want them to actually trust the words and not just chant them like superstition, superstitious pagans do with no meaning. So being obedient little homeschoolers, but probably in retrospect more in fear of the spanking they would get for not getting out, than from the tornado, <laughs> they came out. But here's the question I want to bring before your heart, because it applies to all anxiety. Was their heart at peace? Was their heart at peace? During the storm, did they rest in the peace of Christ? They knew the verses about peace and joy, but did they know peace and joy? You see, my authority could compel obedience but it couldn't change their hearts. It couldn't actually bring peace and joy in the midst of circumstances. So that's by way of the introduction to the verses we're gonna go through very quickly. Remember, it's about 
correcting your heart to prepare yourself to rejoice. And we're going to see how to do that. We come to these verses, it's sort of like being commanded to do something we know is right, we know is good, it's awfully hard to do. So as I said, just last night I was wrestling with anxiety about preaching on anxiety. So we're going to do something a little bit different. Instead of going through verse by verse, we're going to reverse the verses and we're going to start at the end and come all the way back to the beginning. Because that's the key to unlocking these verses. So let's look at verse 7 first in your text. In Christ Jesus. That is the beginning. In fact, it's the Alpha and Omega of everything the believer is, says, does, and believes. In Christ Jesus. What does that mean to be in Christ Jesus? Mike mentioned it in passing about union in Christ. What is union in Christ? Here's what it means. You have been mysteriously, supernaturally brought into union with him. We're going to see in just a second a text that is so profound it's hard to understand. A theologian once said it was the intimate, vital, spiritual union between Christ and his people, in virtue of which he is our source of life and strength, of our blessedness and salvation. Not ourselves, not our own efforts, not our own doing. It's already been done for us and being done to us. Okay, put another way. Do you know that you're joined, according to scriptures, you're joined to Christ as a husband and wife are joined together in marriage to become one flesh? You are one flesh with Christ. I want you to think about that. Turn to Ephesians 5. We know the verse, but I want us to think about it again as we get our minds around how to avoid being anxious. Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Now, this is the key to understanding union with Christ if you're a believer. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. He cherishes you as he cherishes his own flesh. You are no longer estranged. You've been brought together, much as a marriage, to become one. You have become one with Christ. And it goes on. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Here it goes. The mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So when you're contemplating who you are as a Christian, remember you have been joined in union with Christ as if you were part of his flesh. Okay? So as a believer, you're joined inseparably with Christ. He will nurture you and cherish you as if you were part of his own body. Right? And all the benefits of his love are going to be bestowed on you, not because of who you are, but despite of who you are and because of who he is. Okay? So through faith, you are his, you are his and in him. That is the essential reality that undergirds everything Paul's telling us to do. You want to, leave, you want to lose anxiousness? Start there. You want to rejoice in everything? Start there. It isn't that you just have a transaction. I believe in Jesus and everything's okay. The demons believe in Jesus or God is one and they shudder. The idea is this faith plate is placed in to come to a realization of union. Okay, so once you understand your union with Christ, your hearts and minds are guarded. Now back up a little bit. Your hearts and minds guarded in Christ Jesus. Okay, it's easy to race past this meaning of this truth. Paul talks about our hearts and minds. He's reminding us that Christian faith involves both the head and the heart. 
That is why the Christian faith actually affirms the intellect or the mind. Our faith has intellectual content. There are certain things you have to believe. Like Christ is fully God, fully man. He lived a sinless life as an atoning propitiation for your sins. You have to believe in that and place your faith upon it. You have to believe in the deity of Christ, the resurrection. So there's content we have to believe. But the mind is only primary in order. It's not, it's not, it doesn't supersede the heart. But God has to go through the mind first to, to, to convert the heart. So put another way, the devil probably could write a better systematic theology than any sanctified theologian. But he's never going to come to Christ because he hates God with a passion. He has all the facts. He knows the truth and hates God with a passion. So the reformers had two sets of concepts that helped us understand what Paul was saying. The first one was orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy. Big words, here's what it means. How you think about God, orthodoxy, is how you'll act about God and the world around him. This is my father's world. Correct thoughts, ortho, correct thoughts about God will have correct action about his kingdom and his world. Incorrect thoughts, you don't get braces, orthodontists, but improper thoughts lead to improper behavior. So that's the first one. The second one was there were three elements of saving faith. So the first one was correct thoughts lead to correct thinking, correct behavior. The second one was, the second set of concepts is something called noticia, a census, and fiducia. All that means is you have to notice the facts. Oh, Christmas is about Christianity and Jesus. You You have to notice them. You have to give assent. In other words, I give intellectual sense. Yeah, 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 there was a guy named Jesus. He was born. He, was, he proclaims to be the savior, savior. But the thing that's missing in most people's faith is faith, fiducia. You place your faith in those facts, and that is what saves you. So that being said, we have to remember, Paul is telling us to dwell on our union with Christ. And that that union will begin to guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That union, not our own efforts. Okay, now talk about guarding, right? The Philippians would have been used to seeing Roman sentinels guard the city. It was a Roman outpost. Had a lot of history of, of, of conflict and battle. They understood from their history the importance of standing watch. Anyone here ever been in the military? Okay, you know you got to stand watch. In other words, you're looking out for the enemy. They would have understand, understood this. And the Bible supports this imagery. So Peter's first epistle, epistle makes this clear, his first letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Here it comes. Kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you know that you're being guarded by the power of the omnipotent creator who created everything out of nothing? Your faith is being guarded. As we begin to understand that, we will have greater faith in the now if we understand the then. Okay? I mean, for heaven's sakes, David understands this guardianship. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. So the Old Testament and New Testament is filled with imagery. We even saw today in our reading of God as a shepherd, a guardian, a loving father, a nesting and watchful hen. In other words, for his people, you are tantamount in his care to bring you to himself. 
So then, you want to rejoice in avoiding anxiety? As I said, begin with union in Christ. Begin there. Come to own that. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind. Now, what's it mean about surpasses all understanding? This is one that's important to know because, okay, put it this way. Has anyone ever been to the Grand Canyon? It's pretty awesome. Or how about our Florida sunsets on just the right day? Or when a storm's coming, you go to the beach and you see the red sky. It seems to be on fire here. It's so beautiful. Now, I want you to try to explain that to a blind person. You can try all you want, but they're not going to see it. In fact, they can't comprehend it. That's what's being described here. Those of you who've captured, those of you, the senior saints, or those who are mature, who've suffered and come through God's academy of refining character and understand his faithfulness, you understand that piece, and it's really hard to describe. You just got to kind of tell young people, suck it up. The Lord's faithful. So with that being said, (laughs) sorry, must have been really tough growing up in our household. (laughs) And her back nodding her head, yes, it was. Quick story, that made me think of a quick story. Once Lydia broke her arm, uh, it's not in the notes, Lydia broke her, broke her arm. I was away. We didn't have Zoom. My wife called me up on the phone. I did a, I did a long distance diagnosis. I think she's fine. For three days, Lydia writhed on the floor of the bedroom, couldn't sleep, everything else, until finally Angela asked the nurse, she said, oh yeah, it's broken. So Becca, don't worry. We're not going to do that to you. But yes, the kids heard many times, just suck it up. Better things will come. Here's what he's trying to say. You can try to describe the colors, can't you? You can try to describe it, but they're not going to see it. And you can tell them, here's what it looks like. Why don't you get it? And they just don't understand it. So think about, again, the senior saints you've known, the people who've been refined by the, by the, by the creator's fire. They fed at the table of Christ for years. They have a peace nurtured by experience and marinated in the faithfulness of God. They've seen it. Things were bad, and then they're good. So the next time things are bad, you know they're going to get good. And so they have that what's called in the military, the thousand-yard stare. (laughs) They're looking right through you towards something better that's coming. It's a profound, almost mystical, ingrained faith that combines theology and experience. Now, theologians have said oftentimes wisdom can be defined as theology plus experience over time gives you wisdom they have known god and been known by him at a deeply intimate level that's almost can't be described and that's what paul's talking about here you want to get there to this peace that surpasses understanding really dwell on these realities in faith okay i mean for heaven's sakes christ tells his disciples in john 14 peace i leave with you my peace i give to you it's a gift Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. So what we see here is the supernatural operating through our circumstances in us to develop this type of patient forbearance. So, you want to avoid being anxious and continuously rejoice, ponder and reflect on the reality of God. How do we practically obtain this peace? So going in reverse order a little bit further, backing back up in the verse, and everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Prayer as taught in the Bible is the reverent address before God 
to God in humble recognition of who you are and who he is. That's kind of a technical definition of prayer. God, I know who I am. I know what I am. But I come before you to communicate with you in reverence. That's prayer. Okay? It involves devotion. Now, I want you to think about this. We've all said it, but have we thought about it? Boy, that couple's devoted to one another. What's that really mean? When we say someone's devoted to one another, what's the essence of that? Well, it means it's more than physical attraction. And for anybody who's been married kind of longer term, you understand the physical attraction comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes. Sometimes it's high, sometimes it's not so high. But when you say that they're devoted to one another, here's what it means. They yearn for one another's company and companionship. They yearn for fellowship at a level that they cannot have with anybody else. You've been through the trial. So this is what, this is what we've told young people when they're getting ready to get married. You only think you know what love is. As you, you know, they're, they're getting, oh, we're so excited. We can't wait to get married. <laughs> you only think you know what love is. <laughs> Give it 15, 20, 25, 30 years. God's going to teach you what love is through devotion. The deep yearning for a type of intimacy that you can't have with anybody else. That's what we mean when Christians, remember they used to say, I'm doing my morning devotionals? It doesn't mean you're going to check the box before you do your day your way. I got to read the proverb this morning, see what it says. Yeah, yeah, I need to stay away from uh, prostitutes. I need to stay, okay, I need to save my money. Don't try to get rich quick. I'm ready to go. (laughs) That's not what he's trying to get at. It's this yearning for that fellowship that you, in intimacy, you can only have with, with one person, and that's, and that's the Lord. And you seek that through prayer, supplication. So, Thanksgiving, right? When you say Thanksgiving, here's what it is. It's the purposeful, planned recognition of everything your Father has given you. You ever heard a song, count your blessings, count them one by one? You want to have this peace? Count your blessings in a planned way to the Lord. This is hard to do, isn't it? All the past favors, all the present blessings, all the future promises and assurances, even your circumstances. And you know, your circumstances are being orchestrated by God. You know Romans 8, 28, he causes all things to work together for those who love the Lord called according to his purpose. How about this one? James tells us, anybody in here facing affliction or is anxious about their status, Count it all joy, my brothers, when, you're, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness, steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So there you have it. So through prayer and supplication, you go before the God in reverence, before the Lord in reverence. You make specific requests. You're thankful you'll start seeing this well up within your soul, this welling up of thanksgiving. Now, I got to ask you this real quick as I, as I uh, look at my watch and I realize Andrew would be wrapping it up now, but newsflash, I'm not Andrew. <laughs> We're obviously to pour out our hearts to him. And how many of us actually do that? Our prayers tend to be kind of rote, right? We used to have a, you know, you'd go to a Bible study with people you don't really know in big churches, and their prayers came down to three things. Health, 
traveling mercies and other people's sins. That's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about communing with devotion to that other you want to have fellowship with. Has anyone here, you're going to, oh, by the way, you're going to get one of three answers, yes, no, or wait. Has anyone here ever, ever given thanks to the prayers not answered? In retrospect, you look back and go, ooh, that was an air miss. Oh boy, I was running out of altitude on that when the Lord bailed me out. Or how about the request that were denied or delayed? Why is this taking so long? Why? And then he answers it for you. So remember, you have access to the throne room of God. Okay? Hebrews 4.26. Let us, then with, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of your union with Christ, the Alpha and Omega of how we're to behave and believe, you can go through the blood of Christ into the throne room of the creator of the universe and pray, supplicate, thanksgiving, and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in that union. So now let's get to the two imperatives. All the way back at the beginning of the verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. And don't be anxious about anything. These are emphatic. Paul's adamant about this. And what he's saying basically is remember who you are in Christ. So you'll live like it. That's what he's saying. Start with here. Recalling and remembering. And then you'll live about it. How many of us just say, I've got to try harder. I've got to get over my anxiety. I've got to, get, I've got to rejoice harder. And we just keep repeating that cycle of lacking joy and being anxious. You know, during difficulties, we tend to feel as if God is far away. Remember what it says there? The Lord is at hand. He's imminent. He's personal. He's present. He's powerful. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Psalm 139, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? The implication is nowhere you can go. Believer, there's nowhere you can go. You're not under the watchful and guarding hand and eye and heart of the Lord. So, here you go. Let's go to application. Three words to wrap up the application. Remember, context, text, application. Reflect, plan, and act. You've got your mind now. You're dwelling on who you are in Christ. He's guarding your hearts and minds because you're praying. You're going before him with boldness and confidence and devotion, the, the yearning to have fellowship. Reflect on the, real, the reality of who you are in Christ and who he is. Reflect on what he's done for you and the awesome privilege that comes with union with him, that you are part of his body and he will nurture you. Thoughtfully plan, that's reflect, plan your devotional life so that it's purposeful, regular, and actual. When I say devotional life, I don't mean I got to have my quiet time this morning and get it out of the way before I get my coffee and get on the way to work. However it looks for you, just remember, cultivate this desire to be with that one relationship you want to be above all others because it's so intimate. Okay? And then finally, act on those plans in love and faith, knowing that he cares for you and that he's promised you peace and joy and it's going to come. So what are some practical things you can do? Here you go. The practical rubber hits the road. That's kind of theologically. Practical, consider your consumption of news and social media. Please. Now I'm looking in the mirror. <laughs> I'm looking at Wes. You know, I got to stop going on, get sucked down in YouTube vortex of watching The Five and Tucker Carlson. I've just got to stop. <laughs> on the side of preventing anxiety, consider that consumption. 
There's a concept in sociology communication called the dangerous world hypothesis. Shocker. If there are people who consume the news for more than 10 to 15 minutes a day, believe the world is to be far more dangerous than it actually is. You ever notice that? It's ending, it's ending, it's ending. Is this the year 60, 600, 1600, or the year 2022? Uh, here's a quick quiz. Just, I love to end with quizzes. Quick quiz. What year in United States history had the most heat-related deaths? It's all around us. The climate crisis, climate emergency. Be scared, be very scared. 1936 had by far, by far, the most heat-related deaths. True or false? Cold weather kills more people than heat. Depending on how you count, by a factor of 10 to 1. But it's by far cold weather kills more than hot weather. Here's one. You ready? Which of the following three years had the most violent crime? 2022, 1980, or 1960? 1980. Reagan for America. <laughs> but we can blame Carter. Anyways, 1980 followed by 1960. And a distant third is 2022. But is that, if you're consuming the news, is that what you'd hear? Over and over, the images of pillage and raping and anxiety all the time filling your consciousness. Now, here's one hitting a little bit closer to home. What is the chance of your children, 21 or younger, being abducted by a non-family member in the United States? Point zero, 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 two percent. It is statistically impossible. Well, nothing's statistically impossible. Cause gonna jump all over my case here. It is, <laughs> it is seven outliers. It is statistically almost impossible for your children to be abducted by a non-family member. Depending on the year, it's anywhere from 20 to three. Now this is bad, 20 to 300, but we have 51 million young people in the United States, 21 or younger. And yet, how many of you would quake at the thought of letting your 12-year-old, well, that's maybe too old, your 10-year-old and a group of kids walk down the 7-Eleven? The world is going to feed, uh-oh, I see my people uncomfortably laughing in the back, uh-oh. <laughs> it's newsflash, it's because you watch the news. <laughs> so with that being said, okay, now the parents are quaking and the, and the children are going, yeah, mom, yeah. Now, I'm an equal opportunity offender. Young people, get off social media. There is volumes of research that, that by psychologists, social psychologists, cognitive psychologists, that social media negatively affects self-image. It creates envy. It amplifies vanity. Because none of your friends are posting. Here's a typical social media post. It's a selfie of something glamorous, and the only acceptable response is, OMG, hot, hot, hot. Oh, you're beautiful, girl. <laughs> Sorry. Angela's scowling at me like, bring it back to the text. I apologize. <laughs> so here's what's happening. Your friends on social media, it's not the real you. God's interested in the real you, all of us, me included. What's going on in your heart so you can be aligned with me? 
He's not interested in a curated image of yourself that you're putting out there for mass consumption. So this applies to all of us. So practical, last three minutes I've got for helping you rejoice. You've heard say practice makes perfect. In this case, practice makes patience. Okay. As the children came out from under the table, they learned through experience there was nothing to fear. They gained a peace, at least about tornadoes that stayed with them. So utilize these lessons. Remember these lessons, and the peace of God will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Pick someone in the church. Pick a Christian who exhibits joy and peace. Draw them out. Draw close to them. Imitate what they do. Watch how they respond to circumstances. Ask about their trials. Here's one. So, you know, heaven forbid, go to someone on their deathbed and ask them, what is the Lord teaching you? I mean... I, I, all I can say is one of the more meaningful things ever said to me, I had a really bad accident many years ago and it was give and take. And, and, a, and a friend of mine, a pastor came in and he didn't say, how you doing? Or, I'm praying for you. He said, what's the Lord teaching you? Pointing me to my circumstances and what I'm learning. You know, these people, the senior saints, they've been experienced with time and wisdom. They've seen life storms and God's greater faithfulness. They're schooled in the father's character through a curriculum of testing. They come to understand their union with Christ in a way that's hard, almost impossible to understand. Remember the couple of verses to take away. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Psalm 55, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. 1 Peter 5, 7, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. Remember, the harder you try not to be anxious, the more anxious you'll be. You'll be trusting in your own effort, which will lead, if you succeed, to self-righteousness, self-righteousness if you don't lead to despair. So, in conclusion, if you just keep on reading, Paul gives us the antidote. Old people, young people, boomers, Gen Zers, everybody, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things not about the things that are causing your anxiety or exacerbating your anxiety. And then you'll rejoice in the Lord. Facing anxiety, want to rejoice always. Think of Christ, fix your eyes upon him. Approach God with confidence and meditate on fruitful things. And remember, we didn't start the fire. It was always here since the world was turning. But praise be to God that our Lord is a great fireman. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. for the chance to come together. And I I pray for Andrew and his family. Watch over them and just let this be a time of refreshing fellowship, not not any sort of stress. Remove those stresses or help them to act in a godly way in those stresses and bring them back to us refreshed and ready. Build a hedge of protection around their hearts and minds. And for us, Father, let us be doers of the word and not merely hearers. As we dwell upon you and we begin to practice that obedience to the verse after dwelling on you. Father, we just praise you that we know their outcome because we can see it in those around us who've been tested and tried by you, Father, and brought into a more lasting image of your son, Jesus Christ. For in his name we pray, amen. Thank you, brother.